Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. I'm going to call you Billy. Billy Turf is on the show today, and we are talking about well, quite a range of things, actually. We're talking about how to form your strategy. You know, is it cash flow? Is it capital appreciation? Or is it both? Uh, how to look for and kind of analyze your first commercial to residential conversion. Uh, how to, like raise money uh and actually what was quite interesting was a list of places that you can source deals from uh such as gumtree and other social media networks which we may actually not think of uh we also go through why billy doesn't necessarily do big sort of developments um why he may will do them at certain times in the market and not others so this is quite a nice broad uh podcast covering quite a few different topics and we we kind of throughout it speak about risk and de-risking if you like what I'm doing, please follow me on Instagram, Tej.talks, uh, YouTube, Tej Talks Property. I think I'm on like 500 subscribers now. Ooh, let's get to a thousand. Uh, in LinkedIn and Facebook, I'm Tej Singh. And if you want to invest with me or do something awesome, send me an email. Hello at Tejinvests.com. And check out my new website, Tejinvests.com. Billy, welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. I was looking at your website the other day. And when it said about Billy, I expected, you know, kind of a paragraph or two. But what I was smacked with was all these awards um, and all these like, you know, being a finalist at all these awards. So I'm quite excited to learn more about you, what you're doing and share this value with other people. I mean, let's see. So you, you won Simon Zucci's Property Mastermind 19. Uh, you were a Property Entrepreneur entrepreneur Business Plan finalist 2019, 2019 Asana Best Presentation finalist. 2019 Property Investor Award finalist, 2019 Crowd Property Deal of the Year finalist. So a bit of a mouthful, um, but this means you've got some great experience to share with us. So uh, for people who don't know, you know, who you are, could you maybe talk us through like where your journey into property started? Like what were you doing before property if if you were doing anything and how did you get into property? Yeah, um, so I've really had, I suppose, two careers up, up till now. So my First career was as a management consultant, which I did from university, um, and did that really from 1998 to about 2015. So did a lot of travel with that. So worked in UK and, and Ireland, worked in Turkey, worked in in the Middle East for nine years. So I really had a specialism of working in an emerging market. Um, and I suppose the reality for me was I enjoyed consulting probably. I don't know, probably for about half of the career. And um, for the, the second half, it really didn't like the kind of fire in my belly. Um, I always had a kind of craving towards going self-employed. And I always liked um, property. So um, probably go go to that. My first property deal, like a lot of people, was you know the, the first apartment I lived in. And I bought that in Dublin in 2001. It was a one-bedroom apartment made a lot of the typical mistakes you do with your own place so did all the decoration myself um you know paid for a new bathroom etc but paid too much on decorating it 
But what then happened, Tedge, was, you know, 2001 was really the kind of boom times in, in Ireland. It was kind of the, the Celtic tiger. And it was all about capital growth. And in 2003, kind of said, I've got one bedroom apartment, wanted to move to two bedroom apartment. But what I'd realized was that the value of that apartment had gone up from 190,000 to about 250, 60,000. So I realized I could refinance quite quickly um, and use that for the deposit for the next apartment. And at the same time, keep the old apartment because the rent coming in would um, cover the mortgage payments on it. So in, in effect, it was a free second apartment. And at that time, it was really about capital growth. So I kind of then went on and made lots of mistakes about places in Bulgaria, um, bought place a place in Audley Edge, um, really at the peak of the market. And, and I'd all been focusing on really capital growth at that time. And then it's kind of 2007, 2008, the, the, the market obviously fell away because of the credit crunch, then really saw every property go into negative equity. Um, wasn't overly concerned at the time because I was working and had a good income from the, the job. But at that point, I kind of thought, oh, property doesn't really work so much um, because I'd really been focusing on capital growth because that, that's what we did. And we've been watching Sarah Beanie and we've been watching Location, Location. Around about 2011 was probably then when I was getting a bit peeved off with work and kind of thought, well, how does this property stuff, you know, that, that there must be a way to, to, to get from it. And I was aware that, you know, just renting out the houses that I had gave me more pleasure than kind of winning million pound consulting projects. Um, 2011, you know, did a, a bit more research, you know, forums like Singing Pig were, were quite active then. Um, Facebook was, was probably around, but it, it was more kind of Singing Pig where I got a lot of stuff from. But was really a little bit uneducated and um, bought a couple of single lets, quite low end, because I, you know, realised it was about cash flow then rather than about capital growth. Probably what I didn't realise when I was buying some of the cheaper single lets was that the, you know, whilst the return on investment looks quite good, you know, if a, if a boiler goes in a seventy grand house, it's the same place, same price to replace it, one hundred and fifty, one hundred and sixty grand house. So my kind of view is whilst. Anyway, I still think single let to a certain level can do work and it's where a lot of my strategy is now. But um, it was kind of saying I, I would need more cash flow to be able to get out of the day job. Um, it's probably around about 2012 I came around to understand how the student market worked in, in, in Liverpool um, and really started to do minimos to three bedroom, four bedroom uh, minimos. And I kind of um, got up to about, I think, seven properties in 2015 and I was actually traveling back to Dubai from Manchester and I was um, in the lounge it was kind of new year and I was kind of like you know, my son was back in Liverpool going away to do a job I don't really want to do 6,000 miles away you know how can I get um, this to work and, and a couple of copies of YPN magazine with me read them on the plane and the one thing that kind of surprised me Ted was that there seemed to be a lot of people that had managed to create a portfolio, leave the corporate world, which is what I really wanted to do. But they seemed to have been in property, you know, less time than me. And they also seemed to probably have jobs that never paid the same amount as me. So that kind of struck a chord with me. And what I kind of took from the, the articles was most of them had 
invested in themselves at some point. So they'd almost done, you know, one step back to go two steps forward. Um, I'm Scottish and it was kind of released to the corporate world. So it's pretty cynical about training. I really saw all those get rich quick schemes. But anyway, I researched a lot of the trainers that were around at the time um, and, you know, and went to, to the point that I actually contacted people who'd done the training programs to ask what were they like? Did I actually believe them or not? Um, and w- without going into too much detail, um, Simon Zucci's pin mastermind appealed to me on on a lot of fronts. You know, I kind of looked at it as that it had education, but you also had coaches, you also had mentors. Um, the community around it was was quite strong. So I then um, signed up for his 2015, which was Mastermind 19 program and really got myself educated and that really changed you know without a doubt the best investment i I made in myself and 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 in my life compared to any properties um you know i was still you know i had a portfolio beforehand um was a little bit um you know probably i I argue i knew 90 percent of the stuff that you know before you know i wasn't a newbie but the 10 percent that i didn't know really made a big difference um and that just helped me, you know, particularly scale. So you know, before Simon's program, whatever, four years ago, as I said, seven houses. We've now in the portfolio got about 40 houses, completed um, six commercial to, to residential deals, um, got some, you know, small training company, small finance company. But, you know, lo- long story short, after kind of doing that program um, in the 12 months, I'd managed to create a portfolio that, that was large enough and was paying me more than what my corporate job was. Um, I mean, it, it was a crazy year. You know, I spent 30 nights in an airplane coming back from Dubai, always had refurbs on, you know, did my first commercial to residential uh, and it was grade one. But it was really one year that kind of said, I'm going to really put everything into this, you know, keep the job because that, that covers the cash flow, but make sure I then built a business that could mean I could leave the the day job and, um, you know, just I don't know, by luck, by timing, by whatever you want to call it, um, you know, that, that happened. And I think you know, I, I'd handed in my notice two weeks before the last mastermind um, event in, in April. And then I was lucky enough to, to be asked by Simon to go on stage as top five and then lucky enough to be voted as as top performers um, by my peers. And then since then, you know, my, my second career started. So I um, you know, came home, went full time, probably spent about 12, 18 months thinking, God, what, what's this full time investor like? What, what does that actually look like? Spent a bit of time understanding whether I really wanted to be a property investor or a property developer or whether I wanted to own, own multiple businesses and you know, got to the conclusion after a bit of trial and error that I, you know, I see myself as, as a, an investor. You know, I've got to work in the business without a doubt as well as, as, as on it. But it, it's a business that I've set up that, you know, if I did want to move to Australia, I could run from there. You know, I've got a number of staff now, but they're all self-employed. They're all on contracts. Um, the yeah, We've done other other developments um, in, in um, on the Wirral, so in Hamilton Square, which was grade one, and then some grade two developments in, in Plymouth. Um, so so done a bit of that. Don't really like the, the development market at the moment just because of, of price, prices, but that comes into my kind of a, 
investor rather than owning a business that means I can choose different strategies that I think are most beneficial based on the market, um, but also aligned to how you know I want to manage myself in terms of the amount of time I want to work and the amount of time I want to spend with my son, the amount of times I want to spend with a partner, I want to spend with my friends. Mm -hmm. And then just going back a little bit, how long do you think you spent researching what course to go on? Because it is a big decision and there's so many providers out there and there's so much bad press and there's so much good press. Like, how long did you spend on it, you reckon? Probably about four weeks, you know, so went on, you know, I, I got it down to three providers in the end. Um, I mean, two of them I still rate highly. They're, they're, they're very different. You know, the two I rate highly are, are Property Investors Network and, and Progressive. Um, they're, they're very different in terms of the, what they provide and what they create, but I think they're both good organizations. The, the third one I won't mention because um, he's got a lot of bad press about him. Um, I think, you know, I think the short answer is I think technically he's good, but, you know, I don't think he's got the same ethics um, as what, for example, PIN does. And I think with courses as well, there's a couple of things, you know, I think some of it depends, you know, there's a lot of debate about there, you know, should, should you invest, shouldn't you invest? You know, to me, mastermind is very good if you actually need the support of a community, if you actually need kind of the, the help. And, you know, I'd been used to a corporate world where everything was kind of negotiate, negotiate, everyone was kind of against you. If you need to kind of move from a corporate world to entrepreneurial business owner, I think PIN is really good for that. I think Progressive, for example, is far more kind of product based. So they're far, um, you know, and, and they're a larger organization. I'm sure they probably make more money. Um, but if you want to go and just get some technical advice from somewhere like Progressive, you know, I think they've got good courses. I think Rob and Mark give out a lot of great information on their um, podcast and I think you know now I, I'm part of a um, property entrepreneur board so I, st I still you know I, I invest a whatever it is five figure sum each year um, to do that but I, I don't see it as training I, I see it as I'm an investor so therefore I don't have a whole board of directors but that gives me my board of directors that I spend two days with each month and it's actually you go through different cycles. So when I was doing Mastermind, for example, it was about creating a business. And then once you actually create a business, you then have to sort out the mess you've created, work out your staff, work out your systems, work out your 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 processes. Um, and, and I always say to people, you, you know, you need to think, you know, are you someone that needs to be in a group with lots of people? Are you actually someone that needs to do one-on-one -on -one and get your hand held? Are you actually someone who is, you know, very motivated and will just bang, go out and, and do things? So, you, you know, it's it's there's one, there's a provider, but it's to that actual course you need. Again, stuff like Mastermind is quite broad and it's really about creating a portfolio. You know, if someone's very clear and they just want to do serviced accommodations, they just want to do developments, um, etc. Maybe just going on a technical program is, is better for them. Um, but you know, I also say to people you that you also get the flip side when I know people who have spent you know scary amounts in programs and have never actually gone out and bought anything. You know, I'd always make sure that whatever I'm doing or I tell anyone to invest in, you need to invest in that and then get the return. You know, people have contacted me and said, "Oh, I'd like to do mentoring with you." And I've had conversations with them about what they're doing, 
and they're already on a program and it's kind of like well you really need to finish that program first embed what you learn from that get your return on investment and then move on to the next program yeah yeah i feel that and uh, you mentioned before you know when you started you were looking at capital appreciation then it kind of moved to cash flow for people who because this is kind of a common question people say oh you know, should I just invest for cash flow or capital or both? Like, what's your view on sort of those two, uh, maybe kind of strategies? I guess you could call them. And how do, how do you, how should people work out what's best for them? And in your opinion, is there a preferred, you know, way of doing it? Yeah. So th- the reality is, we are all a business, um, and if you think of how businesses operate, it's actually about getting units first. So even before cash flow, you know, you think you're a new phone company, it's actually about getting your phones to, 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 to the market. You've normally got some cash behind your funding from somewhere. The business then looks to say, right, I need to get cash flow in because we're not going to survive if we don't. They then actually look to say, okay, we need to be profitable. And then once they're actually kind of profitable, they then kind of say, okay, we want to be um, an, an asset. So we actually want to have a wealth so someone could buy us. So if you think of utility companies, you know, they actually then turn into really a, a yield stock where simply people invest for them for, for the cash coming off. And I look at property the same way. So what I say to people is, you you know, you need to have cash flow first. That's going to cover your um, day-to-day expenses. It's going to cover any staffs. It's going to cover the, the school fees. And you need to get that in place first. And whether, you know, and if you have a job, that can also cover your, your, your cash flow. And there's nothing wrong with, with staying in a job either. Um but that, that, you, you have to get that covered first. If that's not covered, you can fall down. The second thing you can then look at is you know profit plays. So profit plays, to me, are doing stuff like developments, are doing flips, is my, what I do in my, my lending business where I might not get paid till 12 months after we've, we've made a loan. And that's amounts of money that you can then use to go and buy other assets that will go into your, your kind of cash flow pot or to spend on, on holidays or to spend on new cars, whatever takes your fit. And then the third thing you want to look at is assets. And when I talk about assets, I really see them as properties or or it could be a pension that you're, you're not going to touch. I really look at it as for my legacy. So it's stuff, you know, it's really the Warren Buffett investment. You're, you're buying it for the long term. So if you give me a million pounds, um, Ted, and said go and spend it on whatever you want, get the best return over 10, 15 years, but you can't touch the money, you know, I would go to London, I would buy the most expensive house that I could do for a million pounds, and I would just leave it, you know, so property is great in that it, it does give you two bites of the cherry compared to a lot of other other investments that don't, in terms of, you know, typically it will give you some cash flow, but, the, you know, the lower the cash flow, the higher the capital growth should be, and but the capital growth, I believe, in the long term is actually where the gain is, so you, you always say to people, you need to get your cash flow sorted. And that's typically going to be by stuff, single lets, service accommodation, HMOs, whatever. Then you don't have to do a profit play if you don't want to. But if you want to get lumps of cash, do some profit plays to give you lumps of cash. And then think about your legacy. Think about what's going to create long-term wealth. And that really should be in, in asset plays. Um, but when you're doing an asset play, you're doing it so that you don't need the income, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. And so, you know, going back to, I guess, when you came out of the mastermind, well, I guess you were, when you were on the mastermind, 
what were you doing? So you'd had a couple of properties before, but this obviously accelerated it. What was your kind of strategy at that point? Like, did you say, right, I want HMOs and commercial conversions because they're big cash flow? Or like, how did you work out what kind of properties to buy? Yeah, so, so the reality is I was a little bit confused to start with because, you know, the goal was to leave the corporate world. And then all of a sudden, when I came back to the UK in 2016, it was like, shit, now what do I do? And um, I probably spent you know, six, seven months trying to work that out. And probably spent a long time just going to networking meetings and talking at them um, and still not being very clear what, what, what I was doing. But I was then doing another development deal. You know, we just agreed um, the purchase of two offices and an old care home in, in Plymouth. And that, that was going to be the development deal. And I suppose to some extent then in my head, I almost sort of, what I'm going to do is I'm going to follow the property kind of evolution, which is, you know, do single lets, do, you know, HMOs, do commercial to residential, you know, become a developer. And that that, that was kind of the, the top end. But then probably during you know that year and the year after, you know, I took far more of a considered approach to what, what I actually wanted, where people were actually successful. You know, so the good thing about property is that, you know, it's not like school. It's OK to copy people. And the reality is, to me, to be a, a developer long term, it's very cash um, dependent. It's very cyclical. And I actually had lunch with one of the, the biggest developers in the, the Northwest. And, you know, he was talking about, you know, they've got a 50 year business plan. Business came from his granddad. They don't really care if the, the market goes up or down. You know, when it's going up, they're, they're just putting on more houses. When it's going down, they're, they're buying more land. So they're typically doing the opposite to to what everyone else is. And that really is a business. And so to me, people to be developers, you know, they either need to be able to raise significant cash to make sure that their houses are, are, are always covered um, and also to be prepared that, you know, they, they don't pay out. Development deals don't pay out to, to two or three years. And the reality was that wasn't really what I was wanting. You know, I wanted to make sure I had the cash flow that I could kind of live the life I wanted to do. Felt that, you know, far less investors or landlords will go bankrupt, far more developers do. Um, also, you know, I'm, I'm quite happy to wait for returns, but I didn't want to be doing chunks and really not getting a payback for three years. You know, I like to do stuff, add value, get it refinanced, then get the cash flow coming in from kind of six months or 12 months. And then I, I kind of also went through this kind of thought, you know, do I want to have a big business and do I want to have a big office, et cetera. And, you know, I probably went over that stage a little bit and then kind of came to know that, again, I, to me, and, and, and everyone is different. You have good friends who have got businesses, what I, what I, you know, whether it's a letting agent, whether it's, it's a training company, et cetera. But to me, I see that as, as, as another job. And also with a business, you get your you only get your return from a business if you sell it. You know, that you know, someone with a letting agent doesn't really make great income, but you, you know, your aim is you get to big enough scale, you'll sell it for a certain multiple. Um, same with a development company. And you know, the, the likelihood of most people selling businesses are very small. So I'm a bit of a I look at the numbers and, and I look at the risk, and it's kind of like if being an investor will give me the cash I need and the cash I need to do as, as a legacy um, why take the risk of, of owning a business you know, I've also got friends who do you know, non-property stuff they've 
private equity backing, etc. And they've worked in businesses for five, ten years. Some of them have exited them and, and made good money, but more than haven't have, have spent a good chunk of their life. And I wouldn't say they end up hating the business, but they can be quite demotivated by it because you know that they, they ultimately haven't had the return. But it, it, it's really what motivates you. You know, I think maybe if I was in my twenties, I'd, I'd have a different view in this. You know, I'm kind of mid forties. And to me, it's really about making sure I've, I've got a legacy provided, making sure I can provide for the people just now and really not have to worry about money. So I also won't take the risks, for example, now that I would have taken um, four years ago. You know, so if you look at cash flow, we we keep 100 grand reserved to do, you know, we, we, we've got a lot of HMOs over summer that they need cash putting in them. As the portfolios have evolved, you know, you're going to have a couple of decent refurbs from 40 houses that that you're going to do each year. So, um, and you know, I, I hate having money in the bank, not, not doing anything. Um, but I, again, you know, it, it, as you grow, you've got to put some of these more structured processes in place and having emergency funds is one of them. Yeah. That's a really good point. I think, you know, you covered how you're, you know, looking for the passivity of property, like, you know, you know, we can argue back and forth of how passive it is, but, you know, you were looking for the de-risked sort of more passive approach, which I think a lot of people want, but then they also want the rewards of development. And there is, you know, there are risks and there are pros and cons of each, which you've been through there, which people do need to consider. Um, yes, single lets are, you know, boring, whatever people want to call them, they're vanilla. Yes, HMOs are small compared to, you know, building from land, for example, but that's irrelevant, right? It's what it brings you. It's what it gives you and does that match what you want from it right because you know but someone listening to this could say nah you know what billy and Tedge, nah i'm going to do huge developments and risk it all and that's cool um it's all about doing what you know fits and suits you so you know this this kind of period of like quick growth how was this financed so did you use investor funds was it your own funds it, it, it was a combination so um I had some of my own funds, um, you know, reasonable amount, but also what, what I would say would be a huge amount. Um, and I, I really funded it in two main ways. So some wasn't in investor funds that I used, but I also added value. So I, I did what I call momentum investing. So part of the, the large growth was buying, you know, two bedroom terraced houses, converting them into six bedrooms. So you're buying them at 60 grand, spending 90 grand on them, but then getting them valued at 200. So it was able to recycle all the cash out quite quickly. Um, and, you know, that time is typically doing, you know, three to four HMOs every three months, basically. So each time, you know, we would have three on the go, refurbing them over a three, six month period. Once they were then rented, the next three years would come on. Hmm. Okay. And then when it comes to investor finance, how did you, like, how did you find investors? How did you manage them? Talk me through, like, I guess, how people listening could, you know, attract investors. Yes, again, there's lots of different ways for it. I think some people overcomplicate it. And I think, again, you kind of kind of what you talked about before, you know, one of the challenges with the people saying, yeah, I'm just going to go and do a big deal. That That is fine. But you know, you're going to say we need a big deal with no money, and then you're going to borrow investor funds, and you're going to pay 10, 15% per annum. If the market goes against you, and we've seen this with quite a few people recently, the likelihood is you're not going to be able to pay those investors back. And there's quite a lot of cases with that. So I think 
you know, people have to really be aware of, of the risk that they're taking, first off, if, if they're going to do that approach. And I would almost say that you, you know, if it's your first deal, you shouldn't be funding it on 10, 15 percent. You, you need a joint venture partner whose money's there and they really under understand the risks, because if it goes wrong, you know, that, that's someone's money that they've saved and, and worked for. And, you, and you've got a huge responsibility for it. In terms of then actually getting individual in, investors, you know, again, I've got two schools of thought. You know, I understand the point about you know, people will go and put investor packs together, will go and do some analysis, etc., and, and almost try and attract people in. I've taken a far more softly approach whereby people have seen what I've done and people have come to me and actually said, oh, could I invest with you? I've also, you know, I've been on crowd property, so I think I'm still probably am the biggest borrower on, on crowd property. I've raised about two and a half million with crowd property, paid them all, all that back. Um, but actually from then getting marketing from them in terms of here's the deals, they know they've been paid back. Some people have contacted me from there and said, could we invest with you separately? Um, and I just have a conversation about you know, what I do, how it would work. I would only take investor funds on board when I've got a clear exit. So you know, I'll take an investor funds for a deal that I'm doing. And um, I, I always buy cash, well not always, but 95% of the time I'll buy cash. And because it's just easier and, and, and it's quicker, even with bridging, it's, it takes far longer than it should. Um, so yeah, I may take investor funds on, do a deal, and then I know the refinance will, will pay them back. Um, also, so, you know, I've gone from the, the state of using a lot of investor funds to using less because the company's making profits um, and you know, reinvesting our, our, our own profits is going to give us a far better return than you know, paying someone 8%, 10%. Yeah. Okay. And then, you know, as you were sort of growing this portfolio, what were some of your challenges what what did you really struggle with because i want people to know that yeah whilst they can quit their jobs in x amount of time and they can achieve everything you've achieved you know quicker slower the same whatever i want you to tell us what you know what were the difficulties you had yeah so, so i think one of the things that you said earlier for example it's a, it's a debate about whether property is passive or not um i i don't think there's a debate you know i i use agents but i i have a you know, I, I, I run my businesses and I have to work. It, it doesn't just happen overnight. So understand, you know, again, and also scaling it. So it was one thing, you know, having seven properties before Mastermind. Then it was one thing having 20 properties to now having 40 properties. So it's quite easy to scale when you're going from one property to two properties to four but once you get to, to a certain level, you've got to come back to a you know, far more reasonable 10 to up to 25, 30% growth per year and understanding what support framework you need for that. So if I look at my kind of staffing model, you know, so it went from just being me to, to doing everything, sort of saying, okay, doesn't really make sense for me to do the books. I need to have a bookkeeper. There's a lot of admin diary stuff here. Okay, I need to get a VA on board. Um, okay, there's some marketing stuff around Kensington Finance and my own kind of mentoring personal brand. I need a marketing person for that. There's, um, you know, we don't, we self-manage a couple of, you know, one-off things like two singlets we I still have. Um, but then kind of saying, okay, you've got 40 houses, you've got preventive maintenance to do, and then you, you, you've got one-off stuff. 
Um, and whilst the agents are good, they're not going to manage your houses like you want to manage them. So I have a maintenance person whereby we'll kind of visit the houses, we'll draw up maintenance plans for them, etc. So you know, one of the challenges is understanding as the business grows and evolves, what you need to do to scale it and also when to stop. So we're very much at the point when it's really almost stupid for us to have agents because of the size we're at. But I don't want to run a letting agency. So, you know, I've always said, and we're getting close, so we'll, we'll see if I stick to it. But I've always said I, I don't want to have more than 50 houses, you know, in terms of that. That can be managed at the investor level with the business model that I have with people being self-employed, with me meeting them each week and then just letting them get on. You know, most of the staff, they work remotely and we meet in the office, but, you know, they're, they're based remotely. They're, they're self-employed so to some extent if they're, if they're not going to work they're, they're, they're not going to get paid um, so, so that's been you know some challenges um, also you know, understanding what I said about the cash flow making sure you know again it's one thing when you've got a couple of houses and something goes wrong when you've got a visa card you can just cover it when you've got a larger portfolio and you'll have ongoing maintenance costs you know, getting to that realization you actually have to run it like a business and a business, you know, I think it was Bill Gates when he was doing Microsoft always wanted to have kind of one year's cash just sat there to kind of cover the, the worst eventualities. And the reality is an IT business is potentially going to be far more volatile than what property is. But again, you know, I'd much rather now take, you know, risk management and safety to make sure I'm still in the game in the next 12 months than just chase growth for, for, for the sake of it. So, you know, really understanding how the finances impact you the stuff you need to put in place for that. You know, also in our risk plan, we have stuff like, um, you know, an operating manual, so as everyone knows how, how stuff works. We have stuff, if anything happens to me, someone to come in to take over the business. You know, we have a property that's unencumbered, so if we ever needed to, to get cash very quickly, we can do, you know, we've got life assurance in place, um, all, all, all that sort of stuff. So it's really, you know what it says, it's looking at businesses, again, they're not actually complicated. You know, it's thinking of what your systems are, thinking of what your finance models are, thinking of what your staffing model is, thinking of what your marketing model is, and thinking of what your actual um, business plan is. So fine, if you're going to do single lets and you, you want to add a million, you know, and you, you've only got 100,000 in the bank, you're probably going to have, how much are you going to have to raise? Is it going to be another 150? Is it going to be 100? You're, you're going to add value and, and refinance. And, and working out a, a plan to do that. So is that investor funds? Is it crowdfunding? Is it doing joint ventures? But really, you know, the, the change for me in the last couple of years has gone from growing a portfolio to having profitable growth in the portfolio going forward and then putting in those tools, processes, systems to manage it successfully. Yeah. And, you know, to, to grow like you have, you obviously need a good supply of deals. So yep. how do you find deals? Is it the standard way through agents or do you use every method possible? Or how can people out there get a healthy pipeline like you had? Yeah, so I think you know, the first thing I would say is don't just sit and write move. That won't work. Um I look at deals, yes, again, that was one of the things from kind of mastermind was you actually want to find the motivated seller rather than the house. And then to be aware that 95% of deals won't work. Um, so I don't have an issue that I keep looking at deals and, and, and they don't work. But my 
approach is then where you take kind of a, a scattergun approach for it, and you, but you only need one or two to fall through. So I've done, um, you know, stuff like landlord letters. I've done bandit boards on houses that we're refurbing. I write letters to people on houses, on streets where we're doing the work, telling them they can use the skip on the street. I'm a local landlord looking to add other houses. If they'd be interested, um, let me know. I bought deals from Gumtree, gone on social media and found deals there. Found auctions where people had portfolios and then by doing a bit of research, um, found out the person who, who owns the portfolio and contacted them through LinkedIn or contacted them through Facebook. So really turned into a bit of a, an, an investigator to find it. Also now we're looking at kind of more commercial properties and doing kind of mixed use schemes with a couple of maybe apartments above and retail down below. Um, so really looking at agents that don't advertise on, on right moves, so old school commercial agents where the masses won't be there. Um, have bought an auction, would buy an auction again. But as I say, what, what I basically do is I list all the different opportunities that I could see bought from other investors as well. Um, so look at all the different things, but accept that each one of them will only spit out, you know, one deal maybe each year. But I, you know, I also think people overcomplicate it. I, yeah, you know, I typically find when I go sourcing, I'll spend two weeks and and I'll get a deal. You know, I put my and also so when you're sourcing, you're sourcing, you're not doing anything else. You're actually spending the time going out there, meeting with the agents, talking to investors, sending out letters, you know, going on to Gumtree, etc. That that's where your focus is for that two weeks. Um, and I also don't believe it's something that you can outsource to a sourcer. I think the the idea of using sourcers sounds good in principle, but you know the reality is why would someone, if someone's got such a good deal, why would they sell it to you? And and I get then the theory, well, um, you they can't do, not everyone can, can do unlimited deals. That would be fine if most sourcers had a portfolio. I know if any, I can't think of, well, that's unfair, that's probably one or two, but very few sourcers actually have a portfolio. So the reality is they just don't understand what a good deal is. They don't understand that, the full costs of it um, and, and I get why they're doing it I think that's one of the challenges of the training a lot of training tells people go and become sourcers help create your pot um, as, as I say I, I, yeah, that's where again where I've seen people get into trouble is when typically they've bought deals from sourcers they don't know the area that's the other thing you've really got to know your area for it um, and again you start to invest in one area so it wasn't uncommon because we were doing so many deals in Liverpool that people would also come up to my build team and say, oh, who's your boss? You know, um, want to sell my house. Can you, know, can you connect me? So there, there's probably three deals in Liverpool. I got actually through my trades people, um, you know, speaking to your letting agents as well, particularly, you know, if they've got a landlord who's looking to sell up or a house that's not being looked after. They know that you're good. They'll know that they'll want to keep the stocks, asking them if they've got some that are aware. And then be aware with investors, you, you get two groups. You get ones that want to just sell and get out quick, and they will do it potentially below market and um, because they're dealing with another investor and, and they, they want to do it quick and they don't have agency fees. But then you'll get other investors who, who want a commercial valuation, and that's not the deals you should obviously be going for. Hmm. Good advice. There's definitely a long list. I think that's inspired me to write a list of sources up on my whiteboard because you just never know when you might log on to, to Gumtree or Facebook Marketplace 
and find a, a cracking deal, but you have to consistently keep doing it, right? And it's too easy to just, yeah, be on right move or message the same agents. Um, and actually, even for residential stuff, there's some old school agents with terrible websites, but they they have some great deals that are just nowhere else, which I just find so weird in this day and age. Um, but it happens, right? So, yeah. and I think even even just going into Google and putting what you're looking for. So, is it a pub conversion? Is it churches? You know, so the night you, you contact some of the church groups who who will sell direct. Um, but also, you know, the, the one bit there, you know, it's interesting. You said you you, you got to be always doing it. Um, you know, so I, I I don't always do it. I go into during my year I have sourcing periods because I, I don't want I don't have you know I don't want to just keep adding for for the sake of it. I know how many I, I want to add, and I'll go and source those deals at the time. So. I, I think it does depend. As you're growing, you definitely do have to be always sourcing it. But one of the things, again, just learning from a, a, as we've grown, you know, that there is a, you know, now, for example, I'm, I'm not as obsessed with time as there was before. And, you know, I won't go sourcing. You know, we've got about a million pounds of stuff we're putting on just now. And I won't be going sourcing until that is 70, 80 percent, you know, put on. We know the builds have come in where they are. We know that we can refinance. And then we know, okay, that bit's just bolted onto the business. So now we're growing. I think some of the dangers I've seen with people as well is that they, they almost grow too quick without getting the stuff embedded down in the business. Yeah. No, that's a great point. And you mentioned before you had some grade one uh, conversions. Can you just explain what grade one is for people who don't know? And then, and if you could talk me through the figures of that and what, what it was. Yeah, so grade one or kind of kind of grade two are are, are listed buildings and um because of the the, the nature of what, what they are they want to be protected so you know they're, they're they're historical you know pieces of really good architects um and they, they have separate planning rules and regulations around them which can can be good and bad it means that you can have more onerous controls in terms of what you have to do it's bad that they, they don't come under permitted development but it can also be good in terms of that they want to protect the building. So when we take the listed officer around and you're building control with you from the council, you know, building control maybe telling you that they, they want certain levels of insulation and the um, listed officer will say, well, no, you're, you're not touching that roof. It, it, it has to stay as, as it is. So, um, you know, a lot of people say, oh, don't touch a listed building. I think if you, if you know what you're doing and you've got the right team around you, it's no more complicated than doing a, a normal development um, depending on the on the, the size of it you know if it's in a reasonable situation you know, I know Sarah Beanie the the big stately home that she did um, she got caught out and stuff like you know really old buildings like castles that people haven't been in for a long time it can be very difficult to identify the, the prices with them um, and certainly you know if I think of the you know ourselves as well you know, we've done six commercial to residential the first four we did funny enough came in very much in budget the fifth one which was also commercial to residential went over budget and sixth one that, that was an old care home went significantly over budget because there was less stuff we could identify beforehand it wasn't until we took certain stuff away that some of the costs came in and there's also a bit of responsibility for ourselves there we probably didn't manage it as as, as tightly as we, we we should have done um so, so, so that's what listed buildings are. But I like them again because a lot of people are put off by them. And typically the ones we do, if you imagine the offices that were probably you know, done in about the 60s, 70s, 
when it was accountancy firms, it was maybe recruitment consultants. It was before all the big out-of-town um, office complexes were built. So those buildings have now got a little bit older. Um, people are going out of town. There's a lot more competition. There's more parking, etc. And they're typically in good residential areas. So there, there, there is a demand and people want, want to protect the buildings. And they're also, you know, I'll typically do up to 20 apartments at a time when, when I'm developing. And that's because it, it's big enough to get rid of any small guys, but it's way too small for any big guys to to get involved. So you've got a, got a little bit of a, a niche of it. Um, in terms of numbers, uh, probably uh, we'll probably work back from the, the, the Plymouth ones because because they're probably closest to, to the mine. So they, they they were twenty apartments, you know, ten in in the office and then ten in the career home. I um. So, 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 yeah, it's 20 in total. Our GDV for them is probably close to about 5 million or so. We've done it with, you know, there's five of us. So, again, that's another strategy I do. So, to manage the risk, we'll take on joint venture partners to, you know, know that if something goes wrong, there's five lots of us that need to go and raise money and, 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 and help out. Um, we've sold them all. We've got one left to sell, which is a pain and sticking a bit, but um, 19 have gone. So, so, it's not the end of the world. The profit on that for each of us is probably about 120, 130. So you, you kind of think off the kind of five million, you're coming to you know, between kind of 550 and 600 um, profit overall. One of the schemes has been far more profitable than the the other one. Um, and that profit, you know, again, just to be clear, we, we charge in our money into the scheme. So if we're going to put money into it, we'll charge ourselves 15% on that. I always like to put my own money in. So I've got skin in the game. I think it's important you can show it to to other investors, um, so that that profit includes some return on, on our own investment funds. So because um, it does have a cost and the actual return from it. Um, on Hamilton Square, it was twenty apartments, and they had a GDV of about two point one, two point two million. Again, it was done with with three JV partners. And I think um, my profit from that would have been about 100 grand again, basically. Mm, okay. And then, you know, when it comes to doing a commercial to residential, obviously you've gone through some points there about making sure it's in the right area um, and, you know, potentially finding yourself a niche between sort of small and big developers. Are there any other things? So, say, for example, you know, I've done buy to layers, I've done HMOs, I'm like, cool, I'm ready for a commercial to resi. Are there any things I should be aware of that I sort of may not have thought about uh, being a kind of buy to let and HMO developer when I'm doing my first um, commercial to resi? Yeah, I think, again, I, I think getting a niche. So, at the moment, um, you know, one of the things we're focusing on is um, the high street. So, they're in a bit of pain at the moment. And when I say the high street, you know, again, it's looking, you know, the, the last two commercials we bought, we've, we've paid 150 and I think 140. So it's kind of, again, getting that level. That, so who typically owns them? It might be the business owner, but it might also be a SIP pension fund. Who the, the reality is that's their pension um, rather than actually a, a homeowner. So um, if it's the business owner and they're struggling and it's a pension fund of maybe so one of the ones I, I bought, the top floor was empty. So it was an office. Um, all of a sudden, the tenants had moved out. So they're not getting the income. They've got a busy business that they're, they're going to run. They're not getting the return that, that, that they thought they'd get. They don't know about permitted development rights. So they didn't know they could just convert that into two apartments. 
Um, well, in fairness, in the pension fund that they couldn't have done, but they, they could have done and sold it on. But you know, so look at thinking of just what that niche is that, that you can get into um, and then thinking of what your end product is. So you know, part of the reason I'm also doing commercial to residential flats is you know, I've got over 150 HMO rooms. That market's changing and will change, so I, I need to diversify. But there's not that many people doing the the one bedroom apartments, particularly if it's just two or three people maybe take a block and, and, and convert it. But there's not that many people that say, okay, that, that's enough for me. And also then understanding that the people that stay typically above shops will actually stay for a long time. Um, so it's quite good in terms of getting a tenant. You know, and it's just balancing my portfolio. So my, my, my HMO stuff, I need to do a huge move in, move out every summer. That takes a lot of time. The single let stuff, the people will stay for a lot, a lot longer. So I think getting your niche is the first thing. I think probably the second thing is you know, you've got choices. You can try and do everything yourself, or you can get people to to work with you. So you know, I have an architect who I'll get on board. He'll manage it. So he'll come in. He'll do the scope of work. He'll manage the planning process. I'll work with him to help shortlist the builders. But we'll take the builders then on board. He'll then manage the process as we go through. So I'll, I'll only go on site you know, two to four times during the the, the actual project. Uh, you know, happy to pay the extra money to again make sure there's control there. But also, you know, the, you know there's change orders coming in. You know, he knows that the up to date price of a day rate of a plasterer, how much materials cost, etc. So really, to get a niche, get the people with you, and then also just get a. a a strategy that supports what you're trying to do. Mm. And you mentioned Plymouth. You also mentioned Liverpool. Now they're quite far from each other. So do you invest in one area or do you invest anywhere? Yeah, good question. So I have invested anywhere and I wouldn't tell people to invest anywhere. So our portfolio is, is mainly Liverpool and Manchester for buy to hold, but still get stuff scattered about in Ireland, Birmingham, Bulgaria and Plymouth. Um, I'm only now doing stuff in the Northwest, you know, so it's kind of you know, one of the things I also say to people that, um, you know, yeah, I, I always would recommend investing as close to you as you can. And I don't, you know, I, I work with people who invest in London, so I don't believe there's anywhere that you can't invest. And again, one of the things that I find that, that people make mistakes with is when they've got a portfolio all over the country, you know, just economies of scale, the agents you use, having the same plumber to do your your gas certs, getting to know the streets, etc. Um, so you know, Bulgaria and Ireland were, were bought beforehand. Um, Birmingham, you know, was bought when I was simply growing a portfolio, and it was kind of like I would do a deal anywhere. So I mean, I have, I did have in Wales as well, but I exited Wales just before Christmas. You know, kind of made a decision that it was just more hassle than than, than what it was worth. Um, so the short answer. I've, I have done everywhere, but my preference now is just to do the Northwest. And even and when I say the Northwest, the reason I'm in Manchester is because of the size of the portfolio in Liverpool. Um, you know, it, it's back to that one at a bit of diversification, but Manchester is more of an asset play, whereas um, Liverpool's more of a cash flow play. So it says the portfolios develop, you know, the, the growth prospects for Manchester are stronger than than, than Liverpool. And so it was as more my business model was changing and also because I had to diversify rather than it being the simplest thing to do. Um, you know, I guess we'd, we'd probably be one of the largest private 
um, student landlords in, in, in Liverpool. So that there's only kind of so much of that market you can take. And there's quite a few at the same level, but b- b- between us, that there's you know we're not developing more stuff there that that market's really at the top so had to move somewhere else but i definitely think as close to where you are is the best way to do it okay and what have you got planned for 2020 what are some of your goals uh for this year yeah so 2020 is about a couple of different things you know so it's really about um you know maintaining and protecting what we have in Liverpool. So we've got a lot of work this quarter, working with agents, making sure stuff's getting let out, making sure all maintenance stuff is is in plan. And then another part of that is actually then growing the Manchester portfolio. Um, so And that's typically doing um, commercial to, to residential under permitted development, either keeping a shop, cafe bar downstairs, and then putting an apartment in the, in the back of that, and then a couple of apartments up, up, up upstairs, um, and yeah, it, it's steady growth. You know, there's no huge big bang change. You know, the, the market's interesting at the moment. I don't, you know, say I'll, I will do more development deals when the time's right, but not at the moment because you know I, I think we're still in a bit of uncertainty, and you know the, the reality is prices can drop by 20% and, and they will do. So to me, it's not the right time to be doing developments. Um, so, so I don't want to be doing them. What I really want to be doing is focusing on getting that portfolio almost um, finished and, and and completed and really then focusing on a lot of my asset plays. So doing stuff in, in pension schemes, which is, is quite tax effective, making sure all company profits go in there to minimize tax liability and really looking at that to be kind of a next, it's still quite a low pot of cash, my SAS, but looking at that to be a next you know, pot of cash that I can use to kind of drive growth, um, you know, and also hopefully setting up a SAS in, in, in my son's name. Again, just looking at more the the, the legacy and tax effective ways of investing. Mm, awesome. Uh, and what what do you think is Apart, I think we've covered a few, but what do you think the biggest challenge for property investors, so not developers, but just investors, is going to be this year? Or do you think it will be the same challenges as before? Yeah, so I think the... This will be, so I think there's always opportunities. I think it's... Yeah, you know, I don't even when everyone's going on about Brexit, it really it just didn't concern me because you can't control it. I think it's just being aware the market changes and you need to do an appropriate strategy for that. Um, so I think you know if you think of really the past, a lot of people have been focusing on HMOs and focusing on service accommodation and have been focusing on developments. And you know, I would ask people to you know, does that actually suit where where they are at the moment, or have a lot of those asset classes getting to their their peak? And and you know, to me, the actual um, high street is is where the, the the opportunity is. So it's still not it's doing different strategies, but there's still deals there. You still need to to source it. I think funding now there, there's more cheap money out there than there's there's ever been, whether that's from banks, crowd companies. People looking to get get a get a return, um, so yeah, properties to me is a, is a simple business. You know, the, the good thing about it is you're getting an asset, and the reality is that asset can be used as different things. So, you know, you can have a house, 
could be service accommodation, it could be an HMO, so you, you know, and stuff like that. And the other big one just now is assisted living. So there's not been a lot of support from the councils for that. So actually getting assisted living in place is a huge opportunity. I personally haven't done that because I'd be concerned of the input that it would have on the street and the asset value, but it's it's an opportunity for people that, 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 that that's out there. And I always say to people, yeah, I don't like selling stuff. I would rather reposition it. So, you know, I have like a an emergency plan if, if some of my HMOs don't rent, and some of them would be to turn them back to single let. So even if I was to take a lower income from them, I'm quite happy with it as, as a single let because it's still giving a return. If, if I was to sell it, it's going to take three months to sell, then I'm going to have to use the money again, find a deal, you know, you're, you're six months, nine months off the market, whereas I think, you know, the real growth will be in, in, in the asset value increasing. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think the danger for people, to be honest, is maybe doing strategies that the market isn't right for. So running out, you know, the, where I know people who run into mistakes is when they've borrowed too much money, when they've tried to do very niche strategies like high-end stuff, which only really works when the, when the market's strong, um, when they've maybe done stuff and not been aware that regulation will come in, like of service accommodation, um, doing HMOs really when there's no demand, you know, um, in you know secondary towns, etc. So I don't, I don't think, I think again, it's business. People just need to, you need to get a strategy, you need to source it, you need to fund it, and you need to operate it. There's a housing shortage here, um, so there's a great way to to make money from it. But I think the key thing I would say to them is they need to make sure they've got a strategy and a plan that's right for the market rather than I, I don't get this, you know, and lots of people say it's, and then it's funny, you, you hear it both ways. There's a couple of people I know now who are relatively young and, and they're saying there'll, there'll never be capital growth in London again. There will be, it, it goes in, in cycles, it goes up and down. And, you know, I, I was never involved in 2005, six, you know, I didn't know about the, the same day um, returns that, that the people used to get when they used to use the, the, the bridging finance and, and do money deals. And I said it was easier then. It's just different. There's, you know, we're in an island, there's a shortage, unless there's a huge overall change to planning control or the government does a huge build, which they won't because they don't have, have the cash, then there could be challenges to, to, to the market long term. But I don't think um, there's anything significantly out there that would stop people doing it. You you need to be aware of tax. But again, you can, you know, people kind of say, oh, well, you you do a business, it's more difficult to get the tax out of it. I mean, I did a um, podcast myself, I think, last week and identified quite quickly how you can pull 100 grand out of your business tax free. Um, So, yeah, there's opportunities, but you need to know what you're doing, I I guess, is what I'd recommend to people. Mm, Okay. Awesome. Uh, Billy, if people want to get a hold of you or learn more from you, how how should they do it? Yeah, so Facebook is, is, is obvious. Um, I'm on LinkedIn as well. Uh, my email is billy at billyturriff, which is T-U-R-R-I-F-F dot com. If they just send me either, either a messenger on Facebook or send me an email, it'd be great to chat with people. Amazing. Billy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. really appreciate it. Thanks. Appreciate it, Tej. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.